Well, it seems like in every age, there's no shortage of people who think they're living the last days. People turn on the news, see the world falling apart, hear about wars and earthquakes and famines, and think this must be the end. Not too long ago, this was the gist of Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Published in 1970, he believed that the end times had begun with the regathering of Israel in 1948. He then suggested that Jesus could return in the 1980s, because that would be one generation later, the last generation. And Lindsay cited an increase in wars and famines and earthquakes as support for his view. He also identified the European economic community with a revived Roman Empire. And he predicted a Soviet invasion of Israel per the Gog and Magog prophecy from Ezekiel. This book influenced a lot of people and led many to believe that they really were living in the last times. Even Ronald Reagan, while he was governor of California, told legislators in 1971 that Russia was a threat to Israel because they perfectly fit the description of of Gog from Ezekiel. It turns out, though, they were all wrong. The 1980s was not the end times. But this hasn't stopped people from ripping stories from the headlines as proof that these are the last days. Not too long ago, Mark Blitz discovered an interesting lunar phenomenon. He found that there would be four blood moons, or four consecutive lunar eclipses all falling on Jewish holidays. And these four blood moons began in April 2014, and the fourth one is next month, September 28th, 2015. And originally, Blitz connected these four blood moons to the sixth seal judgment from Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, and said that the second coming would happen sometime in the fall of 2015. So I guess we'll wait and see in a month. We'll find out. He also said the tribulation began in 2008, which means we're living in the tribulation. So far, it's not that bad, so I guess we'll just have to wait and see. This type of thing has been going on forever. Every generation thinks that they're the last generation. Even back in the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries, for example, the reformers like Luther and Calvin, they all believed they were the last generation. They even went so far as to identify the Catholic Pope as the Antichrist. Every generation has made their predictions, and every generation has been wrong. Still, people are not deterred because... One generation will truly be the last one, right? I mean, eventually, some guy will say the end is near and he'll be right, just by chance. But what do you make of all the confusion, all the failed predictions, all the guesswork? Why do so many get things seemingly so wrong? Well, people's misunderstandings are driven by a mishandling and misinterpretation of biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy about the end times has to be one of the most enigmatic portions of scripture, but also the most abused portions of scripture. This is certainly the case for the passage that we have this morning in Mark chapter 13. Why don't you take your Bibles now and open them to Mark chapter 13. And today we're going to be resuming our study of what's commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. It's the second longest message Jesus ever, ever gave. And apart from the book of Revelation, it's the most significant prophetic passage in the New Testament. Jesus really fills his disciples in on the end times. doesn't tell us everything there is to know about the end, but what makes the Olivet Discourse so special is that it's a really nice chronological overview of things to come. And it fits perfectly with 
the prophetic picture elsewhere. Last time we read the entire chapter and we made some big picture observations on what's going on here. We also delve further into verses 1 through 4 where we learn that this whole discourse was actually in response to some questions asked by the disciples. They were, at the time, totally confounded by Christ's prediction that the temple would be destroyed. And they were anticipating the end of the age at any moment. I mean, here's Jesus. He's the Messiah. The Messiah has come. This is it. He's going to usher in the kingdom. It's all, it's all going to be over. And at the time, they had no concept of two comings of the Messiah. But the doom of the temple threw a big wrench in their expectations. And they're just trying to make sense of it all. And they want to know, when, when's, when's this going to happen? When, when's the end going to come? When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And the rest of the chapter is Christ's response to their questions. Now our goal is to <clears throat> preach through the whole chapter, verse by verse, like we always do, and explain and apply what Jesus has to say to these questions. However, I know that for a lot of people, dealing with prophecy can be challenging and, and confusing. Also, there's no shortage of different views that really clouds up the whole issue. But people struggle with biblical prophecy. And that's why last time, instead of just jumping right in, looking at all the details, we spent some time teaching and giving a, a basic introduction to the Olivet Discourse as a whole. Especially when dealing with prophecy, you need some foundation of biblical knowledge. And that's what we provided last time, looking at kind of a big picture overview. And today, that's what we're going to continue to do. You see, before we jump in and look at all the details, and we're going to be doing that as the weeks go by, but before, there's this extremely significant and fundamental question we have to wrestle with to make sense of what Jesus says here. And it's the question of when. When will these things take place? To what time do the words of Jesus here apply? You're going to have a really hard time making sense of all the details, everything that Jesus says, if you don't have some handle on the timing of this prophecy. It's actually the first question the disciples asked. If you're in Matthew thir- or Mark 13, rather, look at verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. And their first question, they say, when will these things be? Primarily, they're referring to the destruction of the temple, which Jesus just predicted. They want to know, when's that going to take place? But their their driving force, though, as as we see later, and also in Matthew 24, verse 3, they just want to know, when will the age end? When will the Messiah reign in glory? That's that's their expectation here. When's that going to happen? And what will be the sign that it's coming? When's the, when's the kingdom coming for real? When will the messianic age begin? Jesus, when are you going to reign and rule from Jerusalem? When will Israel be restored? And what signs point to it? Maybe at this point, Zechariah chapter 14 has entered their mind. I don't know. But Zechariah 14 sees a time, the coming day of the Lord, when the Messiah comes to deliver his people. Verse 2 in Zechariah 14 pictures the nation surrounding Jerusalem, battling and and conquering, destroying Jerusalem. But not long after that, or or concurrent with that, the Lord returns, standing on the Mount of Olives to fight for and deliver his people. So maybe, just maybe, the disciples, they're starting to see, okay, I guess we can see how 
the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem fits into God's prophetic plan. But either way, they, they still, remember, they still have no concept of a second coming. That Jesus, he's going to die and then depart, ascend into heaven, time will elapse, and then he'll return. They don't have that all figured out yet. They're still under the assumption Jesus, he's going to stick around and establish his kingdom, you know, any moment. Okay, yes, first, maybe the temple has to be destroyed. They're coming to terms with that. But they still think that relatively soon, Jesus will deliver Israel. And they're asking, okay, when? When will that happen? And what will be the sign that you're finally coming in in that transfiguration kingdom glory? As you can already tell, they're still a little misguided. They've got some details wrong. The kingdom will not be coming right then and there. Jesus must first die, and then he's going to depart. He's going to leave them and leave the earth. And there will be time that will elapse before he comes back to reign and rule. Jesus starts to fill them in on that in the upper room the night before his death. Remember that? He tells them about his departure. But even here in the Olivet Discourse, which takes place a few days before that, he's starting to give them clues that he's not actually sticking around and the kingdom will not be coming as soon as they think. For example, look at verse 6. He says that before the end, many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. And that clearly implies that Jesus is gone. Because otherwise the disciples would not be in danger of being misled by a false Christ. If Jesus the Christ was still with them, they couldn't be misled by a false Christ. Also down in verse 26, Jesus tells them how he, the Son of Man, will come in the clouds with great power and glory. It just implies an ascension into heaven. Because if you're going to descend from heaven, well, you first have to ascend into heaven. Again, all this is new to the disciples. As we covered last time, they have no concept of two comings of the Messiah. And Jesus, in these final days, he's progressively filling them in. Still, though, the question remains, even for us today, it's a fair question, when? When will these things take place? When will the kingdom come in its fullness? When will Jesus finally reign and rule on the earth? When will the Messiah come in glory and power to deliver Israel and righteously reign over all of his people? Even though the disciples, they had some details off that the question of when remains valid. And we are left to discern the answer to that question from the words of Jesus. When will these things be? To be clear, you're not going to get a day or a year. Jesus specifically says, nobody knows the exact timing. That's not the point here. The question we really want to ask now from our perspective is, of all the, all the things that he says in this whole chapter, the whole Olivet Discourse, from our perspective, is this past, present, or future? Everything that he said, should we be looking for a past fulfillment? It's already done. Is this a present fulfillment, like it's in our day and age? Or are these things all still future, yet to come? It's actually a big deal, and different people take different views, and we need to figure that one out. This is the fundamental question we must answer before we can really dive in, look at all the details of what he says. And so that's what we're going to try and do today. We're going to say the text and the context at large and try and get some handle on the timing of this prophecy. That's our goal for this morning. I've got, I've got to confess, it's, it's going to be less of a sermon this morning and more of a, like a Bible lesson. 
Sometimes I've got to do that. Take you back to Bible school. More of a, It's like a class in Eschatology 101. Just do some teaching. Because again, you have to have that foundation of, of some knowledge to build on when we get into the chapter as the weeks go by. You need some grasp on biblical prophecy. If you have any hope to get the details of what Jesus says here right. And so we need to spend some time grappling with this question of when. What, what's going on? When is this going to happen? Past, present, future. Can we, can we find out based on what Jesus says? So that's our aim for this morning, to figure out the question of when. First things first, I want us to give our text another read-through. Now I know it's really long, but since we're doing more introduction today, I want to take advantage of the opportunity to do more big picture stuff, help you see that the big picture And especially if you weren't here last time, you're going to be really lost unless we read the text at the very least. You have to have some idea of what he's saying in general so we can piece together the the timing. I'm not going to read every verse just for the sake of time, but let's read the bulk of this again. You're familiar with this very important Olivet discourse. So with that said, we're going to read just, just for the sake of time, Mark 13, verses 3 through 32. Still long, so do your best to pay attention. Follow along as I read through Mark 13, verses 3 through 32. Verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father... His child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. And those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who's on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. Those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, behold, here he is, or here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed. Behold, 
I have told you everything in advance. Verse 24. But then in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send forth his angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And we can stop there. He goes on to tell another parable. That's enough for now. You read all this, though, and and hopefully you yourself are wondering, a fair question, okay, one, what, what does that all mean? But two, when's this all going to happen? When will these things Take place. He has a lot to say, and you can probably discern some of it already, but but everything we just read, from now from our perspective, when's this going to be? Is this all past? Past fulfillment? Already happened? Or present? Is this happening right now? Or is this future? Are we looking for a future fulfillment? It may seem confusing to you, simple to you, but nonetheless, a lot of people believe different things. We need to wade our way through this and figure out a little bit of the timing of this prophecy. So let's start with the past. Is this all past? Have all of Christ's predictions that we just read in the Olivet Discourse, have they all been fulfilled by some past event? And some people believe, yes. This view is called preterism. Preterism. They believe that everything or just about everything Jesus said here in the Olivet Discourse and also in the book of Revelation have already been fulfilled in the past. Specifically, they point to the year A.D. 70 when, as we said last time, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the invading Romans. You may wonder, like, why would they pick that date? Why would that mark the fulfillment of all these prophecies? Well, it goes back to what Jesus said in verse 2. Look at verse 2 of Mark 13. And he predicted that not one stone would be left upon another which will not be torn down in regarding the temple. And that was fulfilled when? In A.D. 70. In regards to that one specific prediction, everyone believes that was a past fulfillment. And that's fine. But preterists, though, they take it one step further and they say everything else that Jesus says also finds its fulfillment in the past, in the events up to and before A.D. 70. This view has captured some attention because when you read parts of the Olivet Discourse, it kind of sounds like the early church. It sounds like it could be you know, part of the book of Acts. Look, look at verse 9 again. He says, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Didn't that happen to the apostles? That kind of sounds like what happened to Peter and Paul in the book of Acts. Also, preterists point out that 
In the decades leading up to AD 70, there's records of earthquakes and famines and wars. So that seems to fit. In fact, they think they can find some ancient fulfillment to every single one of these prophecies. But the real kicker for them is verse 30, where Jesus said, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. We're going to say that verse a lot more later. But preterists believe that that can refer only to the generation of the apostles, which means this all has to happen in that first century, which fits with AD chapter, or rather AD 70. So some really take seriously this is all in the past. Others do not believe it's past or future, but present. They think everything Jesus says here is being fulfilled right now. This view is called historicism. Historicism. They believe that Christ's words are either being fulfilled all throughout church history or today in our present day. And this view has also caught some attention because pretty much everything you read in verses 5 through 13 has been going on all throughout church history up through our present day. I mean, look, look at verse 7 again. He says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. That's like all of church history. That's what's always been going on. So it seems like that could be today. Jehovah's Witnesses are noted for their historicism beliefs. They believe Jesus returned invisibly and began to rule in heaven as king in October 1914. And since then, we are living in the last days. This is the end times. We are living in all of it discourse. All we're waiting for is for the kingdom to come and Christ to rule over the earth. They, they find support for this belief given the increase in turmoil of the 20th century. You know, we've got World War One, World War Two, all these diseases. Also, I'll mention, like I said earlier, that the reformers, they were historicists. They believed their day was the last days. So some people believe this was all past. Others think it's all present. But there are significant shortcomings and problems with both of these views. Before we move on, you know, preterism, historicism, they've got some serious problems. You know, a future message when we get to the parable of the fig tree, where Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I'll be talking about the timing of these events in, in much greater detail. But for now, since we're doing this like introduction this morning, I want to tell you and expose you to some of the, the really substantial problems with viewing everything Jesus said as being in the past or even the present. It just doesn't fit. And the first glaring problem is the scope of Christ's predictions. Now, the events of AD, AD 70, they concern one nation, Rome, coming against one other nation, Israel, in a tiny little corner of the planet. But that's majorly in contrast to what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, for he foretells here of a truly worldwide global cataclysm. What's he, what he's talking about, no part of the earth will be untouched by the events he describes. Look at verse 8. Again, he says, For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, AD 70, it was just one nation, Rome, against one nation, Israel. But Jesus, he's foreseeing a time when the whole world breaks out in war. Verse 10, he says, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. 
As a precursor to the end, God gives one last testimony to the entire planet. Now, some think that this was fulfilled in AD 70, and that Jesus, he's just talking about the known, the known world, like the Roman Empire. But the parallel verse in Matthew 24, 14 seems really emphatic. That, no, Jesus meant the whole planet. Matthew 24, verse 14, he says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And furthermore, if you believe that was fulfilled in AD 70, that means the Great Commission was also fulfilled in AD 70. And that's a, kind of a tough sell, at least in my book. Now look at this. Look at verses 19 and 20. These are pretty significant. Verse 19. He says, For those days will be a time of tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now, and never will. Verse 20, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Really, under no stretch of the imagination could the events of A.D. 70 be said to fulfill these verses without making Jesus a liar. He says very clearly, this coming tribulation time will be the worst time of calamity to strike the earth ever. Past, present, future, like this is the worst calamity ever. That includes the Holocaust of World War II, which was way worse for the Jews than AD 70. It also includes the global flood. This will be worse. In fact, Jesus himself compared the coming tribulation to the days of Noah. Matthew 24, verse 37. This is going to be a worldwide day of reckoning involving all the nations. As a quick side note, this same time of tribulation is talked about a lot in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, what's the scope of the tribulation? In Revelation, it says over and over, the tribulation involves all peoples and tribes and tongues and nations. Those four words, over and over again. How else do you inclusively describe everyone on the planet? It's, just, it's a global event. It affects everyone, very much unlike It's a global event, and it calls for global signs. And that's what you get. Look at verse 24. He says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are under heavens will be shaken. When the sun and the moon are affected, everyone is affected. And likewise, everyone is sees what happens next, which is the return of Christ. Verse 26, he says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. It's even more clear in the parallel. Jesus adds a few more words. Matthew 24, verse 27, he says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And the point means everyone will see it. It's unmistakable. You never miss lightning. You, everyone sees it. In verse 30 he says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. We could continue, but I, I trust you get the point. Whatever similarities there may be between the Olivet Discourse 
and the events of the first century or the 20th century. Jesus is clearly describing something on a global scale, which means it's something we've not seen yet. This is an unmistakable worldwide tribulation. So is it past or present? No. It must be future. It must be future. Hopefully this is clear to you. Some of you may already know this. It's it's a no-brainer to you. But nonetheless, it's important to go through. You may wonder, how then do these other guys, you know, preterists and historicists, how do they get it wrong? Why do they think it's in the past or the present? Well, in a simple manner, it's basically because they interpret this text without a consistent literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic. Meaning they don't just take it at face value. Instead, they spiritualize most of what Jesus says. It's kind of ironic because there's one verse in this chapter they take with a strict literalness, literalness rather. That's verse 30, where Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That to them is super literal. cannot mean anything other than the generation of the apostles. They can't see it meaning, for example, the generation of tribulation. To them, that must be literal, must be talking about the first century. But to uphold this, they then sacrifice the literal meaning of everything else. Nothing else is taken literally after that. It's all spiritualized away. Nothing means what it clearly seems to mean. For example, nations, they don't really rise up against nations. It was just one nation against one nation. And the gospel, it doesn't really go out to all the nations. It just goes out to most of the Roman Empire. And the tribulation, it's not really the worst time in human history. It's just, you know, it's just really bad. They just have to spiritualize all these details because the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70 doesn't quite exactly fit everything Jesus says here. And then you have the whole issue of the second coming of Jesus. Remember we talked about that, verses 24 and following. Did that take place in AD 70? Jesus returned. Some say yes. They're known as full preterists. They take it all the way. But of course, to do that, they have to totally spiritualize the text. You know, Jesus didn't really physically return, of course. He, he spiritually returned in judgment upon Israel. No one saw him. It was a spiritual return in judgment. If you say, however, that Jesus did not return in AD 70, which I trust to you is a reasonable view, that he did not return in AD 70, that blows away their primary verse. Remember verse 30? That's their main verse. Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Included in all these things is the second coming. So they lose their main verse. They're between a rock and a hard place. I don't know, maybe to you, the arguments in favor of an AD 70 fulfillment are convincing, but I see such a mishandling of the plain meaning of the text. Seeing a past or even present fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse, it doesn't line up with the text or the context or the rest of Scripture, Book of Revelation. It requires some verbal gymnastics and a subjective spiritual hermeneutic, and so we, we reject that. Now, it's kind of funny. What most people fail to realize is that Jesus himself actually establishes a precedent for the the plain, literal fulfillment to his own words. I mean, think about this. Back in verse 2, he predicts, he gives this prophecy that the temple will be destroyed. 
It's extreme. He says, not even one stone will be left upon another. That's a prophecy. And was that spiritually fulfilled or literally fulfilled? Now, at the time, the disciples, they could not even conceive of that being literally fulfilled. That's crazy. The temple is so massive and magnificent. Surely that prophecy must be spiritualized. And Jesus doesn't really mean that. It's probably he means that the temple will go through a time of disrepair. It's not, it's not really literal. But come A.D. 70, it was literally fulfilled to the T. That actually happened. The same goes with a plethora of other prophecies concerning the first coming of the Messiah. All of the prophecies about Jesus, his first coming, they were all literally fulfilled. It's pretty profound. And what does that say about all the prophecies concerning his second coming? It's not to say that there's no figurative language here. If there is, the context makes clear, but we should expect a straightforward, literal fulfillment of what Jesus says And that places what Jesus says here, not in the past or in the present, but in the future. Now I know, getting a little technical this morning, I'm taking it more to Bible school, it's more of a a lesson than a sermon, but again, I hope you learn from this, even in general, how to approach biblical prophecy. Many people today, they're making the same mistake that the Jews were making with the Old Testament. In other words, they fail to see how some prophetic passages can have double reference, a near and a far fulfillment, an initial and then a later a full fulfillment. Now, some Old Testament messianic prophecies, they spoke of the first coming and the second coming in the same text, like Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. And the Jews, they got that wrong because they, they only saw one coming. They failed to see two comings in the same text. Other prophetic passages purposely contain, you could say, a double entendre or a double fulfillment. There is an intended partial, maybe typological fulfillment to the prophecy, but there will also be a complete, more precise fulfillment in the future. And let me give you an example. Take God, his promise, his covenant promise that he made to David, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember, God promised to David, David, you're going to have a son. Your son will sit on your throne. He will reign over your people, and he will build me, God, a house. Then along comes Solomon, David's son. And Solomon sat on David's throne, reigned over God's people, and he built God a house, the temple. So was Solomon the fulfillment to that David, Davidic covenant promise? Well, yes, in part. He was partially a fulfillment. Solomon was the intended initial typological fulfillment of that promise. But it's also very clear that Solomon did not completely fulfill everything God promised. And we are left waiting for an ultimate son of David who will fulfill everything God promised through David. And we know, obviously, that to be Jesus, who does fulfill literally everything else God promised. Why would God do this? Why give prophecies that have double references? It's kind of like a down payment. God gives an initial partial fulfillment to display that the later, greater, supreme fulfillment, it's coming and you can count on it. It's trustworthy. You can take it to the bank. No matter what God promises, how big, how extreme, you can be sure it's coming. 
And sometimes God gives an initial fulfillment, like a down payment, to let you know it's coming. No matter how extreme you think this prediction is, it's, it, you can count on it. And here, let me show you. I'll give you one more example of this, and I think it'll really help you really put this together in your mind. I want you to think back to the Old Testament prophecy of the virgin birth. Remember that? I preached on that a Christmas many years ago. You can get that sermon online for the, the long version. I'll give you a brief summary. It's back in Isaiah chapter 7. And we learned that these two enemy nations, they were threatening to conquer Jerusalem. And so God sent the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz with a message saying, don't fear because God is going to deliver you from the hands of these two enemies. And to prove that God was going to do this, God let King Ahaz test him. In Isaiah 7:11, God said to Ahaz, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. God commanded King Ahaz to test him, to ask for a sign to prove that he's good. And he said, make it big. I mean, we're talking parting the Red Sea. We're talking a big sign, as high as heaven. But in verse 12, Ahaz says, no. He's like, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. It was a totally phony display of righteousness. King Ahaz was a wicked king. So God rebuked him and said he will give him a sign of his own choosing. But God switches it up and says, the sign I'm going to give, not just for you, Ahaz, it's for the whole house of David. So God makes it bigger. And what's the sign that God gives? Now God is giving a sign. And what is it? He says this in Isaiah 7, 14 through 16. He says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Now, if you put that together, at first glance, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. Especially since the word for virgin just means a young maiden of marriageable age. So when Ahaz heard this, in his mind, he just thinks, okay, so the sign is, some young lady is going to have a child, and before that child gets old, these two enemy kings will be destroyed. That's the sign. I, I, okay, it doesn't seem that big, but, but that's it. And that was fulfilled. You read the next chapter, Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah himself had a son with a young maiden, and before that son grew old, those two kings were destroyed. So it was fulfilled. Partially. Initially, it was fulfilled. But you keep reading, you read, you read Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which is part of the same context. You just get this impression that God has some bigger plans for this, this sign through a son. He's got something else in store, something bigger. There might be a grander fulfillment of this sign through another son. And what do you know? You turn to the New Testament, what do you find? Many, many years later, you find another young woman who gives birth to a son, only this time she actually was a virgin. She was literally a virgin and conceived him as a virgin. Now that's crazy. That's a sign as high as heaven. That, that just doesn't happen. That's a big sign. And in addition, her son was called Emmanuel. Only this time it was actually literal. <laughs> he really was God incarnate, God in flesh with us. 
And then also, this son would deliver God's people from their enemies. Only this time, we're talking ultimate enemies, sin and death. And so this is why Matthew in Matthew 1 says, Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 7.14. I thought it was fulfilled back in Isaiah chapter 8. Well, it was initially, partially, like a down payment. But the grander, fuller sign to come came later, much later, in Jesus. And he fulfilled it all. This is how God so often works. It's an excellent example of a near and a far fulfillment of prophecy. It's also an excellent example of the literal fulfillment of prophecy. I mean, think about this one. If there's ever a prophecy that needed to be spiritualized, this would be it. I mean, virgin birth, that's, that just doesn't happen. That, that can't be serious. It must be talking about something spiritual, like a spiritual virgin. But no, that was fulfilled literally. And also, the child himself, God with us. That, that's, he's not really going to be Emmanuel. I mean, God can't take on human flesh. That's impossible. But it was fulfilled literally. God came and took on flesh in Christ. Pretty amazing fulfillment of prophecy. Now, bring it back to the Olivet Discourse. This understanding of biblical prophecy in general helps us really discern what Jesus is saying here. And don't get me wrong, the events of AD 70, they were hugely significant. But in them, we do not find final fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse. At best, they were an initial fulfillment, maybe a typological fulfillment. The destruction of the temple, it's in the context of our chapter, so it's appropriate to see that event prefiguring the end. It's like an image of the end, but it's not the end. It's not the end that Jesus speaks of in this chapter. There is another end, the real end of the age that comes, and it's still future. It's on the heels of a global tribulation. It becomes very obvious now that the words of Jesus, they don't refer to a past event or a present event, but to a future event event. And that view is known as futurism. Talked about preterism, the past, historicism, the present. Those have fatal flaws we can't ignore. There's only one option left. It is futurism. And from here on out, we will be approaching this text, taking it at face value, looking for its future fulfillment. I hope for some of you, this maybe clears up some confusion. Look, some of you may have never even heard of this stuff before. I could have just told you, hey, it's all future, let's move on. I could have just skipped this whole discussion. But at the same time, I hope you really get a handle for yourself. You see it for yourself, a handle on the timing of biblical prophecy and especially the Olivet Discourse. Because you have to get that right, otherwise you're not going to get anything else right. The, the, the fulfillment will not make sense. And this is why we have to handle first the question of when. Again, that's the first question the disciples asked that day. They said, when will these things be? And Jesus didn't give them a day or an hour. Nothing that specific, but from his words, it is clear we can discern that the events he describes are still future. These are things yet to come. And with this, everything else Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse starts to fall into place and actually makes pretty clear sense. It's not that hard to to unpack. His second coming is unmistakable in verses 24 through 27. Everything before that then, the bulk of what he says, concerns a still future time period of intense tribulation. 
Remember, the disciples asked a second question, their primary question. They said, Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And the basic answer to that question is the tribulation. That's the sign of his coming. This still future time period gets its name from Jesus himself. That's what he called it down in verse 19. This is a time in earth's history unlike any other. It's so intense, intense worldwide destruction, intense persecution of believers, intense deception of unbelievers. Jesus also pinpoints a key event, a turning point in the tribulation known as the abomination of desolation. We'll talk about that a lot when we get to it. But after that event, things seem to get really bad, like way worse. But then after that, finally there is ultimate triumph because Jesus returns. After the tribulation has passed, Jesus comes back. And that is our hope. That's our joy. That's our anticipation. That's what we're looking for. We long for the Savior to return, to set things right, to fix the broken planet, to reign righteously and rule over the nations. And that's what will happen. But before that happens, things must get much, much worse. Jesus tells us this because he wants us to know. He tells us because we need to know things to come, that we might be prepared, that we might endure that we might live rightly in the present time. These truths are all hidden from the minds of the unbelieving, but they're revealed to those who know Christ as Lord. He tells us he wants us to know. And with this introduction under our belt, we are now finally equipped, really ready to handle the details of what Jesus says. He tells us because he wants us to know. And we will begin doing that next week. Let's pray. Our great and almighty God, your word is, is a treasure trove. It is, it is profound. This is no simple book. Even though it's accessible even to the child and can be understood by all, we can't continue, we can never finally plumb its depths and, and see it all. There's so much in here that goes beyond. This is clearly the mind of the divine, the mind of God revealed. Yeah, you give us the task of knowing it. It's, it's to our joy, to our blessing, our privilege to, to read it, to understand the things that have been revealed. I pray you help us to do this uh, today and as time goes forward. Thank you for this little study in your word. Albeit technical still, we need to do that. We, we need to know. We want to figure this out. Keep us humble always before your word that we might approach it and get it right. And give us eyes to see. Apart from your grace, if you don't lift the veil from us, we will never get it right. So we pray for your ultimate grace and kindness that we will know. Lord, we, we long for your return, the return of Christ. We, 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 see, we want to see you come back to set things right, to righteously reign and rule, to put an end to transgression, to, to fix things. It is our joy, our privilege, our desire. We pray for that. We pray you come quickly. In the meantime, may we live rightly. We'll be learning a lot about that as time goes on. But every day, may, we, may this give us a greater anticipation of the end, but also a greater holiness right now. It's a purifying hope the hope of the Lord Jesus returning. May we walk purely before you, longing for that day. Bless us as we depart. May we have joy knowing that Christ reigns victoriously in the end. There is nothing for us to fear. 
And give us endurance, though, as the days grow darker. We want to persevere for your glory and for your joy. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.